Rob Kaplan is just one of those people with a reputation you aspire to have. It's one of those, you know Rob Kaplan? Yeah, love Rob kind of things. Perhaps the most notable characteristic Rob possesses are his approachability and his sense of humor. He has a way of keeping things light, not making you feel like you're an idiot all while dropping some serious knowledge. We met in person just before Wind Up San Francisco when I dropped by somewhat as a cold call to introduce myself, say hello, and ask if he'd ever want to be on the show. Well, as fate would have it, here we are. So without further ado, here's our conversation. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Mr. Rob Kaplan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I, I honestly don't know where to start this other than can we give folks the Cliff's Notes of like the history of Topper? Like what's if you had to narrow it down to like the the 30 seconds or less story, where does Topper begin for you? Uh, two brothers named Topper start a watch company in 1940. In less than 10 years, they sell the company, the descendants of, uh, or the, I'm sorry, the ancestors of Russ and Rob Kaplan, buy said watch company, mall stores, no mall stores, downtown destination in Burlingame store, and a lot of watch collecting and a lot of special editions. Amazing. So were you... That was as succinct as I could do it. That No, that's fantastic. No, that's fantastic. I like it. Um, because I'm sure you're utterly sick of telling the story. So, <laughs> um, but It started with two brothers, the Topper brothers, who yeah. lasted less than 10 years and failed and sold it to the Kaplans. So did they sell it for reasons they weren't doing well? They didn't sell it for reasons to get out? That whole part of the, of that whole part of the history is like... Even before my grand my my grandfather got involved in the in the business, my great uncle is the one who did the, who uh, did did that deal. I see. My grandfather was was working in the like he he followed my great uncle from Boston, which is where he was from. He was just a very successful businessman, and he actually first started um, working uh, for my great uncle. My, this is Arthur Kaplan we're talking about. But he started working for him first in, I think, women's clothing um, in Los Angeles. And then uh, my great uncle purchased um, the the, um, the topper stores and then he moved up to San Francisco to help run that. Okay, so there were multiple locations at one point. Yeah, so topper started out as sort of like Americana stores like in Merced and Modesto. So very mid-America stores. Yeah, Central California. Yeah. Got it. American graffiti is what I always think about when I think about Modesto in the 50s. Sure. Interesting. Okay, so when you, Rob, enter the business, are you 14 years old working in a mall? Or like, what, what did you have a job before this? Um. So my, my first job at topper was actually when i was 14 years old and uh i think that we had a central office in milbray that we ran the stores in modesto were set out of so we're talking mid 80s mm -hmm. and i think we had just changed banks uh, and i think there there had to be a stamp on every account receivable that we had from the bank and my first job was spending six weeks putting this new bank stamp on like thousands and thousands of invoice. So I just remember turning a page and going like over and over. Unbelievable. And then the next year I worked in our closest mall store and that was in a dead shopping center called San Antonio Shopping Center. And it was a really, really struggling mall, like really struggling. We didn't have a lot of customers. It was right next to, um, I think there was a Walden Books and there was a place called the Diamond Center. Okay. A guy had a commercial where he would sing how he was a credit man and the ladies <laughs> would carry him around like to, yeah. I'm a soul man. Um, but anyway, it was a real, and so I had a lot of time to flip through catalogs. And I'd say flipping through watch catalogs 
and looking at the watches that we had um, and having a lot of downtime was what started my, my watch love. That was like your education, I guess. But um, so what were the brands that you were carrying in the eighties? Okay. So my brother, um, so we're talking like, I'm, this must've been like 1986 when oh. I had my first summer job, maybe 87. Cause I graduated in 90, 91, maybe 88, somewhere around there. Um, high end was Omega and Tag Heuer. Um, we actually were, my dad put an Omega in the early sixties. So we are probably one of the longer standing independent Omega dealers um, in the U S I mean, now of course we have boutique status with Omega back then it was probably, it was, you know, like a little, probably three foot case. Yeah. Um, tag, tag Heuer, Omega, Seiko citizen. Um, there was a Swiss line of Seiko called LaSalle Seiko LaSalle. Okay. When, which they tried marketing in the eighties that we had. And, uh, Oh, um, there was a um, like a little pocket watch company, uh, Calibri. We sold Calibri pocket watches. They were like $90 to $180, really gold-plated. I remember there was one I really liked that had like a, a semi-truck on the front of it, very classy. Um, there, was, there was another good one that had hunting scenes. I mean, Calibri, I mean, rest their, God rest their soul, you know. Will you pour one out with me for Calibri pocket watches? I got no liquids near me, but I will just metaphorically. Yeah, hundred percent. Okay. R.I.P. And they Um, had and lighters. We sold lighters. We sold really nice Calibri lighters. So they were dual threat pocket watches and lighters. So I'm assuming the bulk of your business was quartz, or no? Um, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Do you miss those days at all? Like, like being in stores at that age selling that because the reason I ask the question is because like when I was in high school, I, my aspirational watch, I mean, aside from my grandfather's Rolex, right. Was like my Swiss army watch. So that was like my high school graduation gift, my Victorinox officer's ratchet bezel. Right. Right. However, is there any part of you that misses the days of, whatever your aspirational watch was when you were 17? Well, I feel like that's a really smart question because I feel like even if you look at the way people nickname hype watches, they're Mm -hmm. always trying to get back to that feeling of before you had much and, um, you know, sort of recapturing that feeling of wanting something. Um, I have been thinking a lot about my first car lately (laughs) (laughs) uh oh purely in preparation of this podcast i'm sure yeah no but i've been thinking it's just i've been thinking about just what i was like back then and what i wanted um i never would want to go you know back to to the 80s and sometimes (laughs) i can think for i can think with a little bit of fondness towards those days when i was you know flipping through those catalogs um but i never I, i just try to be present um, but I, I do like, especially if I visualize it, I can remember what it was like, um, like just cleaning the counters, hoping somebody would come and just flipping through those catalogs. I think about it and right. I do get a little bit nos- nostalgic. Um, and I still have my first, my first watch that I saved up for, like, like you're talking about. Really? What was it? It was a Tag Heuer 3000. Um, so the 2000 made it for years. Um, it was very, very popular in in the catalog in different forms from like the eighties to the two thousands, um, before they called things aqua racer, I guess it would sort of become, it was a predecessor to the aqua racer and the 3000 was like a more octagonal shape that they tried as a more luxe version of the 2000 wasn't quite as nice as the 4,000. And if you got the 6,000, that was like the top of the line. But my right. brother had the 2000. And so for some reason, I kind of wanted to one up him and get the, the 3000. Um, but I really didn't know, you know, what one upping meant at the time. To, sure. to, me, that, to me then, like stealing gold was just pivotal. I had to have some gold plating 
1980s gold plating on my watch. That was really important. That's amazing. I'm assuming your brother's older. My brother's older. He's 13 years older than me. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Significant. Yeah. Well, yeah. You got to one up him for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so like he had the, he had the vision to, to put in Ty Coyer, which was, I think at the time, one of the coolest sport watches you could get in the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And it's got to have a big, and they're big in automotive. So I'm sure there's a big crossover with Ty Coyer and your audience. Yeah, hundred percent. But that's great that I guess if you're 17, he's 13 years older. He's 30, so he had quite a bit of autonomy as far as like purchasing power. Yeah, he bought he bought um, like the cool up and coming watches and added them to our collection. I mean, it wasn't like it is now where we, you know, we'll go after independence for because our audience is so different and. You know, this, the, just the level of sophistication with different brands is so different where we're always, always shopping. But um, he also, oh, there's another brand that we sold. I just remembered. Um, there was an Italian brand that was like a less expensive version of Tag called Sector. Have you heard of Sector? I don't, no, I'm not familiar. Their tagline was no limits. <laughs> um, of course. Uh, and they were really big in Italy. And I remember I went on a trip in Italy in like the early 90s and in every single like store, um, you would see sector sector watches. Interesting. So we sold those in the in the late eighties and early nineties, and I guess that they did find some limits ultimately. I was about to say, it sounds like the their reach was a limit because I'd never heard of them. But... Yeah, apparently there's a, they found some limits. What's something about being a part of a family business that you think might surprise people? Um. I think that probably the biggest thing I would say is based on how busy we are, the amount of time that can go by without any kind of traditional like family talking or squabbling. Like I like when I think of a family business, I imagine, you know, a bunch of people sitting in a circle, like thinking and talking and in in making, you know, their, their plans or get, getting, getting upset about something or I, I just, but we just, we just don't have much downtime for that. So even, even like the meetings we used to have, I guess now, because we've gotten a little bit bigger, they now have, it's just, everything's become more structured. So mm -hmm. I would say the thing that would be surprising is even like our planning meetings have become more structured that that would be then. And there's, there's not as much informal informalness as as maybe maybe there was in in the 80s 90s i just remember like when when we were when i was first in the business like my dad my brother and i would just we would have a lot of time just talking about things and i think that's one of the things that i think people probably sort of i mean so you got two real questions like do you do you want to be part of like a big boat where everybody's like doing their job on the boat and the boat is like moving forward? Or do you want the feeling of just sort of hanging out on the boat and cruising? Right. I would say if you're just it's never the second one. Like when it was the second one, it was always like um, because things were slow. Right. I I think I think it's I think the, the thing I would say is. Our, our goals of keeping things forward and being proactive and making sure we're addressing all the customer needs, understanding the new product, making sure our experience is good as possible. Like all, all of those things tend to be, I imagine not that different than how it is in corp in corporate structure companies. Right. As companies get bigger. So do you feel Does any, Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, you know, hundred percent. Do you feel any added pressure being a family business, given the legacy and that sort of thing? Um, I'd say since I was young, anything that I do, no one will ever put any more pressure on me than I put on myself. Yeah. So not really. I mean, I feel like the pressure that I I always feel, no matter what I'm doing, is pretty constant. Yeah. So I feel the same way about what I'm doing. Yeah, like it it doesn't like I can't imagine like like if you look at like 
like quality, like I'm looking at one of your hats right now. I'm I'm looking at just the quality and the material and the mesh and the design and like the way the logo sewn into the front hat. And I, I can imagine that if your grandfather started the company instead of you, I don't think you would want the hat to be any better. I think you want it to be as good as it can because that's how you're, you're wired, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, you know, I, th- I, I, I think about, um, definitely I, I sometimes think back about, you know, all that my dad did to put us in the position where we are in now and my grandfather before him. And, you know, I, I like to think that they'd be happy with what's happening now. I think about that, but, and sometimes yeah. I visualize what they would have done for problems, but I really don't feel, you know, any pressure because, you know, to live up, I, I just try to be present and do the best I can. Yeah. Yeah. I think I just recorded with Gabe Riley. I know. And, um, he says, hello. Um, what up Gabe? We were, <laughs> we were talking about just kind of how, well, I guess me more so than him. Actually, it was entirely me, not him about how there's oftentimes when I look at things that I've worked on and worked so hard on that I very often only notice the mistakes mm-hmm. as opposed to what I got right. Because I mean, what you get, I mean, it's kind of like learning what not to do is often a, a better lesson than what to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so does that apply to you at all? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And, um, y- you know, like, and I think about, I mean, it's probably easy when you think about things, do you think more about like this in terms of the products you launch or do you think about it in terms of your podcasting? Like what, like what specifically or do you think about things in general or like felt easier if we narrow it down a little, like, are you, like we're talking well, for, about like releases yeah, for, or? for me, for me personally, it's, it's product or like, I mean, well, Gabe and I were also talking about home renovations. And so like I designed my kitchen, right? I just sketched it all out on a piece of paper and I had it made. I did not do the labor. However, there were some mistakes made. And now that's all I see when I walk in the kitchen. So, um, do you know what that reminds me of? My, um, my, my godfather, who was a internist, um, Dr. Bertram Solomon, he had this pool and he talked about how he had this, the pool cover that he would roll out. And there was always an inch and a half gap where the pool cover didn't quite perfectly fit. Unacceptable. And he said, I realize this makes absolutely no logical difference in anything, but for some reason, when I look at this pool cover and I think about that inch and a half gap, it's not covered. <laughs> it's not covered, but it also keeps me from thinking about anything else that might be really bothering me. So I can just think about that gap. And I like thinking about that gap. That's that cool. That, was interesting. that turns it on its head. I like that. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Okay, so what's something that Topper could get better at, in your opinion? What could we get better at? Well, like that you notice, right? Like what's the mistake that you always notice, for example? Um on product is there a cover that just doesn't cover the case line entirely when you close up at night uh yeah exactly um i think um so what do we get better at i think um i think the big one of the biggest challenges that we have at this moment is you know you've got a customer on the phone you have a customer in the store um, the customer on the phone deserves an answer. The customer in the store is right in front of you, also deserving an answer. And so to me, the uh, and then, um, you know, the person who's walking by both the phone and the customer, you know, has a repair in their hand that they're trying to get to the, the repair coordinator who's trying to call the repair coordinator. And so the, I think the greatest challenge is when you have multiple things happening at once, trying to have the grace to help all three of them in a way that they all seem present validated and important and and that that is i think the greatest struggle of of topper when i think about it do you do you have a ranking system god no 
I mean, the person who's in front of the person who's in the store, um, if they're gonna have if they're gonna wait at all, they're gonna have to get an explanation as to so why they're waiting. Um, but they all matter. That's the thing, is um they 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 all a hundred percent matter. I mean, that repair could be a repair of somebody who's already committed to getting, you know, some whether they've got something from you or not. I mean, it could be like a family treasure. Um, the person on the phone um, could be stuck at home because uh, UPS didn't deliver their package and, you know, they don't know if they should be waiting for it or not because there's a lag time in the, in the tracking that they're seeing and where the, where the watch actually is. And the person in the store, um, you know, might have a meeting to get to. So that's the thing is you don't have the information to know which of the because if you're and you're just walking by you really only know which of the three needs to be dealt with first if you heard all three which you can't do right right but what was your ranking well just in terms of dollars i think you know coming from a car sales background number one point of a phone up is to get them in the dealership right so you're automatically going to treat somebody in front of you with priority. Somebody on the phone isn't in front of you, but they could be. Right. Right. So get off the phone, come see me. You'll get more priority treatment. Now, granted, this sounds like a jerk type of situation that I sound right. like a jerk. However, there's only one of me and three of them. So I have to make a decision. Right. So it's like, um, so then the guy with the repair is already spending money with you. You know, for sure. The guy who's not, who's simply in front of you, you don't know if they're buying something or not, right? So it's like, okay, do you take the repair guy while he's being dealt with with the repair? Then you help the next person in front of you and then maybe call the other guy back or woman. So that's the real question is, right? does, does a sales paradigm of ranking these things, is that is that what Topper is? Exactly, right, right. And I answer hopefully not. Yeah, well, and that's funny that you asked me, like if I'm like holistically thinking about yeah, think about it holistically. Or am I thinking about the mistakes only with regards to product, right? Because it's like, I'm not motivated by money in terms of money. I just need money to keep... The brand going. The brand going. Because what I'm motivated, what I'm motivated by is creating products and sharing them with the world, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's not really... Like if I were a billionaire... I don't know. Like my brand would probably be very different because I could afford to do many different things and at different volumes and at different costs as, as a result. But, um, what do you think is toppers main motivation? The experience that people have a good experience and the sales will come from that. Yeah. So if we focus on the sales, you might get sales in the short term, but if you don't think overall about the experience, and have that be the guiding factor, sure. then you're just another store. Yeah. No, 100%. One, um, of, our, one of our best people we have um, left the car business where he was excellent, excellent car salesman um, because he, he wanted a company that focused on A, his number one love, which is watches, and B, didn't have that type of i would call it dollar triage that you're describing <laughs> sure yeah yeah no that's that's a fair explanation that's a really good analogy so yeah so um but you know our lights have to stay on too but uh yeah it's uh anyway so that's the biggest challenge i would say mm-hmm. where, where we are now is deal, is making sure multiple people are all helped as good as can be that sounds like a very positive problem. Well, we do our best. A far cry from the shitty mall from the 80s. <laughs> With no <laughs> customers. <laughs> um, legacy versus enthusiast-driven businesses. Where do you rank you along that scale? Can you define both a legacy business and an enthusiast business? Well, family, right? So you're kind of a legacy business given that it's multi-generational. Right. But an enthusiast business may just be like driven by enthusiasm. I, it's funny. I don't. I don't know 
how different they are because like standard H is an enthusiast business, obviously. Cause like I didn't have lineage already in this role. Right. I mean, we have the lineage on the door. I mean, the logo says topper 1940, but I think of our, when I think of ourselves, I think of ourselves as an enthusiast business, not a legacy business. Cool. Because if you're not treating people and embracing them in their hobby and being ready to listen to them and give them an experience and making the thing that they care about more interesting, then who cares if your grandfather started a mall store in 19, you know, 51 in downtown Modesto to go with the other stores. I mean, what difference does it make? Sure. I mean, it shows a, a commitment, but it's sort of like, it's sort of like when you hear like CEO, like you remember like there, um, Ariel Adams, we were talking, was told me about, uh, we we're talking about, um, oh, um, we we're talking about Vermont and, uh, he's, and, we were talking about the English brothers and what great guys they were. And I remember he said to me, he's like, yeah, they're absolutely great guys, but that wouldn't matter if their watches weren't cool. And I, and so that that's what I think, what I, what I think about, like, if like you can't rest on anything that was done in the past. Sure. Yeah, no, I think that's really fair. As far as brand choice goes, obviously you spoke to your brother contributing to like bringing tag on and such. Uh-huh what percentage of the brands that you carry now have always been there or like, and then the percentage of like new stuff? Oh, since the one I got, I got involved around the year 2000. Okay. Um, maybe we have five brands at the time that are still here. Um, we had Omega, we had Longine. Uh, what else did we have? We got, I mean, we didn't even have, say, I mean, right now Seiko and we're so known for Seiko and Grand Seiko, but we didn't sell Seiko until like 2017. And we started selling Grand Seiko in 2013, but um, we, very few, very few. I mean, Omega, Longine. uh, So how, what's the brand count up to now? How many brands? I don't know. In the twenties. <laughs> oh wow! Oh wow! That's a lot. And we also don't sell tag. Uh, we stopped selling tag in two thousand eleven, which was like three remodels ago. Okay. But but most of the brands, you know, that we're known for, I mean, we we certainly didn't have when I got involved. And and picking brands is something that my brother and I always do together. So um, it's not like I've taken that from him. I mean, that's. Picking, adding brands and deciding what the assortment should be and what it's like when people walk in is one of the funnest parts of the business, I think. What do you look for in a brand in order to even get them on your radar as far as being a stockist? A um, couple of things. Um, number One of the best signs that a brand is going to be incredibly popular is if it starts getting traded in a lot. Because if it starts getting traded in a lot, it means that our customers, people who enjoy shopping with us, independently made a decision at one moment in time that they wanted to buy the brand. Now you might say, but if they traded it in, doesn't that mean that they got tired of it and therefore it isn't good? And I would say no, because a lot of people's appetite for watches are irrespective of quality. Their bu- their budget is high enough that they can't keep everything and tough choices are often made because they want to be able to experience new things. Um, if it was the type of person who bought one or two things, planned on keeping it in 10 years, got rid of it three months later. I mean, that's that almost never happens in trades. It's usually just because somebody got something, they loved it, they had their moment in the sun, and now they want something else. So that's number one sign. So if I notice, like, let's say, um, like three years ago, I noticed a, I started getting a lot of Parmigiani trades. And that made me look at the brand differently. I noticed people walking into the store were wearing, you know, Tonda Tonda GTs, where I hadn't really seen them much in ten years. That's going to perk up my ears. So that that's part of it. But a lot of it is um, 
what do we think is fundamentally interesting and cool and not like other things that we have? What in their own way is a value proposition at any price point that's sort of interesting? And what is something that we would like? Uh, what would we, we would enjoy? And do these people seem like fun people to work with? Right. Th those are the general things we look for in a brand. So when people trade in, is it with the notion that they are inherently getting, obviously, a new watch, I guess, is the assumption? Yeah, we or, don't really buy watches. Um, we just take trades towards other watches. So, but was the understanding that, oh, well, maybe I should be looking out for this brand to blow up because they obviously want the new version of that. Like, say, I'm trading in my old GTI and I'm getting a new GTI because I love the car. It's just there's 100,000 miles on the clock. I don't think it's about mileage because watches don't, because a lot of the people that trade in these things didn't re, don't really wear them that much as, a, as opposed to emotionally experience them. I just mean as in like the newer thing, not necessarily because of wear, but because of say design, for example. But sometimes, but sometimes the design that like, like, like people would trade in, um, watches not because the designs became out of date but just because their time with it was sort of over. And sometimes those older designs are still, or something almost identical to it, are still in the current collection of those brands and people and other people will enjoy seeing them and buying them new. If that makes any sense. Yeah, it's just so counterintuitive, I guess, with the, the trade-in versus this brand's about to blow up. Right. Prediction. Um, but, if, but, but it has been very predictive. Yeah. So for instance... That's one of the reasons I knew that Grand Seiko was going to do amazing. I mean, here we are. We're we're in selling a lot of in 2011, a lot of Omegas, a lot of Zeniths, and suddenly, unlike the five years before, suddenly watch collectors that have been buying for us for years, suddenly they've had a snowflake for two years and they've had their time with it and they want to trade it in, whereas we had never seen that before. That mm -hmm. made me think, you know really educated watch consumers are suddenly into Grand Seiko. Mm. We should really consider that. Right. Because it tells you, and then you, you know, you get to, when people are talking about training them in, you get to talk about their purchase experience and what they liked about it. And um, I think that that that's been, you know, really interesting, an uh, interesting way to gauge what, what we would do well with. And if yeah. it happens over and over and over again, then you realize that it's a compatible brand mix. I really wanted to talk to you about the limited editions that you do. Great. Yeah, let's talk and about limited editions. My favorite when, thing to talk about. I Well, that's great. What? When did they start? How did they start? Why did they start? That whole, the backstory behind those. Okay. So, um, I think... Life is really good if you've got a little bit of competitive friendly rival. And in 2015, there was a, a store in Texas called Timeless Luxury. Um, and they came out with a Nomos Edition club called the Timeless Club. And I looked at this watch and it was great. It looked just like the, the other club editions. But it was this really dark blue dial. He um, he took a size that I think had only been offered with a date and made it a non-date, which dropped the price point down. It was really clever. And I looked at this thing and I thought, why aren't we doing this? Mm -hmm. And um, and this was before Houdinki editions, I think. I think Houdinki editions started happening, you know, a couple of years later. Um, but we then had our 75th anniversary and we came out with two editions in 2015 for the 75th, um, 75th um, anniversary of Topper. One was a Vermont and one was a Nomos. Um, and at the time they were very like self-referential to us because I thought, well, if we did a limited edition, it should have like something to do with us and our anniversary. And ultimately I mean, though those watches sold out, I realized that that was a mistake and that it's more interesting just to create watches that sort of stand on their own, uh, that 
aren't related to design cues about us. Mm -hmm. So that, that has been something that I've looked to do since then. So taking on themes and making sure that if it said topper edition anywhere, it was very, very subtle, like on the back. Because right. I want the watches to sort of stand on their own. How do you decide on how many to do? Or is that determined by the collaborator? Um, that is always an interesting open discussion. Um, there's a, I have a joke about that, that the last thing you want to do is trip on your theme. So um, it, there's a brand that I will name, uh, Glasuta Original, that... Um, came out with an anniversary watch of the CQ in, in, in 2019. And they made 69 steel pieces of this watch that had these amazing, it was like, it's just a steel $10,000 watch that had, you know, this really cool loom on the hands and nobody could get one. It was like six of them ended up in the U S and they were in why, why 69? Because they were, the watch came out in 1969 and sounded great. Um, so you can you can end up sort of getting r romanced in your quantity to have to do with your theme, and that can have bad um, bad indications. Like we did that on a on a topper Oris when we did the maxi. We did um, I think um, we we were imagining um, the the watch in in the in the 60s and we did a count in in the 160s uh and i think um ultimately we sold it out but if we had kept to a lower number we would have sold it out super fast um so my goal in limited edition numbers knowing what i know now having done a lot of watches is i want the watches to sell out i want people who buy them to enjoy them. And then if a year or two later, they want to get rid of them, um, they can get their, their money out of them without an issue. Um, I want people to feel that they're special and I don't want to overproduce. Um, that that's if, if I'm not sure if I should make 20 or 30, we make 20. If I'm not sure if it's 100 or 200, it's a hundred. I like that. So how many, how many LEs have you done in the last eight years? Um, that's a good question. I think when we announced the Helios, we announced it as I think our 12th limited edition, okay. but, um, but that doesn't account for multiple dials, which sometimes happen. So, so for instance, the fears we did was, um, it was there was a white dial and a black dial and a lot of energy went into making them different but i think we counted that as one limited edition i see um when we did the um when we did the zodiac uh we had um the second series of the zodiac had three dials that all came out at the same time but that was like series two so we counted that as one watch so i think gotcha. it's like 12 watches and maybe 17 unique pieces, I think. So a little over one a year. Is that a cadence that you're looking to keep up? Um, we have three planned for this year. Oh, cool. We had one last year. A lot of these things are like, I don't think about the cadence as much as having them come out when they're ready. It's just lead time. Yeah. Um, Like the Helios that we started working on. We, we we started working on that like four years ago. Oh, cool. And it just, because of COVID and some production challenges and um, Jason using different suppliers, it ended up taking a lot longer than we thought. Mm -hmm. And then other watches, um, like there's a limited edition that we're working on now to come out in November that, I, I mean, I feel like everything's been like a, you know, super on time as you would imagine a, a watch you know, hundred percent. Yeah. A, a watch to be TikTok. <laughs> yeah. So, um, it, but it just, you know, but there could be, you know, a slip between, you know, the release time and that. So who's to say, 
Is there any sort of like limited edition or brand that you carry in general that's maybe closer to your heart than another? Not because the others are like less so, but like, is there something that you particularly gravitate towards? Um, what are you wearing right now? I'm wearing a Blanc Pond. Okay. I'm wearing a Titanium 50 Fathoms. That's sick. <laughs> <laughs> um, Let's just call it what it is. That's awesome. <laughs> I don't. I don't wear it that much. Uh, it's. Uh, it's a very. It's. I don't know. I was feeling. I was feeling sprightly. Sprightly today. That's right. Um, oh no! I. I feel. You know, in some ways, I feel really strong about brands like Omega that have been with me my whole watch journey and, and i also I also feel really strong about like brands like fierce where you know i you know in my mind the brand didn't even exist until four years ago when i met nicholas i had no idea what it was until i was staring at his collection you know you know in my store you know in a box looking looking at these reissues of watches that were you know from the 30s and 40s that his company had produced yeah I think it's just about the friendships, the experiences. I, I, I mean, in terms of the watches I, I wear the most, um, I, I mean, I try, I try to get watches from almost every brand yeah. we feature and, and, and wear them. Sure. But I probably wear Omega the most, Grand Seiko. I wear a lot. Do you engrave your watches ever? Never, 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 never. The thought okay. of engraving a watch just gives me anxiety really yeah because it's stuck in that moment in time or what right which is unique from the watch right so that's interesting what do you look for in a watch when buying one like what are you drawn to the i don't know are you a font guy are you a two-hand guy like you know what i'm saying like do you have rules or is it just wow that looks cool no i don't think about it yeah i'm the same way i, I don't think about it i have no agenda or plan right and when it comes to creating limiteds, the most important thing is, you know, what could we make that doesn't really exist right now that is sort of, there are three things I look for. Um, I want it to be some kind of a historical or brand tie-in. I want it to um, have some kind of a modern a mod um, just a just a modern take that's like mm -hmm. a nitpick and yeah. then i want it to have a twist so those are the three things that i look for in in all of our limiteds i could probably come up with you know all something like that for all of them is there a brand that you don't carry but you'd really like to but can't because of say proximity to another retailer or something what would be the one brand that you would hit up most, like fastest? Um, I think that I think if you look, if you look at our pre-owned site, you'll notice one brand that we have tons of trade-ins, tons and tons and tons. That the answer will present itself to anyone who looks. Got it. I don't think a lot about the brands that we, we don't have. Mm -hmm. There's so much to do with what right. we do have. It yeah. just, you know. Yeah, it's a waste of time. Yeah. Or you don't have time to do it. So, I'm just, like I said, we're trying to help the person on the phone, help the person in right. the store and <laughs> get the repair taken care of. So, yeah, you know, that that's the most important thing. And, and I'm very well aware of that. So uh, again, thank you for taking the time to do the podcast because oh, I know there's, there's probably better things you could be doing with your No, time. I, I really but, wanted to, I really wanted to do, do the podcast. Um, no, I really do appreciate it. It's, it's, it's awesome. Um, which as a brief aside, by the way, I'm coming back through your neighborhood in about a week and a half. So if you're around, would love to see you. Um, but, uh, you guys recently moved into a new space. Well, I mean, I say recently. Remind me, how long have you been in the current space? Almost a year, July. Okay, yeah. All right, so it's been a year. What um, Was that just natural growth? We want a bigger footprint? Or was it like a our lease is up? 
let's just take advantage of the opportunity to go elsewhere. Like how did that come about the new space? Okay. So just to, to lay a little groundwork, the topper that existed that most people have walked into was built in the early, early nineties. And, um, it was like a 1500 square foot store with a 3000 foot or maybe a 1500 square foot office on top of it and some offices in the back. So, um, everything was super like cramped. Like Mm -hmm. we had like almost half a million dollars of Blanc Pond inventory under, you know, a three foot case of glass with each one right next to the other one. Um, and it, it, you know, all of our brightlings were like in six feet of space. It wasn't a good opportunity to show all of the brands that we have as they're meant to be shown. Yeah. Amazingly, in the pandemic, we didn't fall into the river. It felt like we were going to on mm. the, the first day, but things sure. went reasonably well during the pandemic. And um, what happened was the the gap had the best space on Birmingham Avenue. Um, they're right in the intersection of two major cross streets. Um, and they had this huge red Ford lease sign. Um, we had the opportunity to upgrade our status with Omega um, to have an Omega boutique. And we had thought about initially getting a small store next to the existing store. And I just remembered one day looking at that big for lease sign, um, thinking about the future, walking over there with my brother and saying, why not this? Like, why don't we put the Omega boutique in the front of it and build the store we've always wanted? Um, and we have we added a few brands since we moved yes but it really wasn't about that because what we had had so outpaced the physical the physical space that just getting what we had you know with proper build outs was was really the main objective of the new space um what, what did you think of it when you saw it I mean, it's beautiful. It obviously looks new. I mean, I saw it, when was that? April, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I've only worked for brands that were like a single brand boutique. You're a multi-brand boutique. Do brands assist in the build out to present their brand with you, like as a partner in that sense? Or are, Absolutely. are you guys Absolutely. out on your own? Yeah. Absolutely. And um, that was one of the great challenges of the project was uh, was the brands um, working with the, the different architects of the brands and um, getting CAD drawings of the sections of the different brands from the brands and also having it aesthetically look good with, with our case line. And so like when we chose the decoration, the biggest thing about that store is we didn't want it to look like like a like a NASCAR car, where right. like everywhere you looked, you would just see like a different Branding. sticker or different yeah. brand. And so the cases that are the topper cases were specifically chosen in a in like the way the walls are, um, the the wood framing on top of the brands framing. Everything was chosen in a way to try to have it tie together. So when you walked around you would almost ask, you know, ask that question of, you know, where does Topper begin and where does the brand end? So that, that was one of the goals of of the build out was trying to make, you know, the transition from Grand Seiko and you turn the corner and it's Glasuta original flowing into Blanc Pond and then Moser, you want it to look as good as, as possible. Yeah. That, that, that was one of the, the, the great transitions uh, or the great goals. Um, there's a store that my I don't don't want to name, but my brother always talked about about what he w- didn't want it to be, which felt like <laughs> it said it felt like, you know, like a crane came in and just loaded every single brand shop and shop one right next to the other. And when you looked in the store, you didn't even see a store. All you saw were shop and shops. But interesting. And like the identity of the store was just you walked in and they're like they're the shopping shops. So we, we really wanted it to feel like a specific place. And that's one of the reasons why we put like um, 
we put in a bar and we put in a skylight right over the bar so people could see things in different in different lighting um, in natural light so lighting was really important in building that store and that yeah. was one of the, the reasons um why we chose it um the space was because of how good the natural light was and how high the ceilings were yeah uh topper definitely does not look like a flea market uh for the record <laughs> um so well done um you know this is a question i commonly ask but how has fatherhood changed you um that's a really good question. Um, I'd say that there's certainly times when, like, I would never leave the store at 3.30 on a Friday, but if I was coaching Little League, I, I somehow did. So um, I think that it allows it allowed me to carve out experiences for um, for my kids that I would never take for myself. Mm-hmm. So I would say that it gave me a chance to sort of experience things that I wouldn't allow myself to experience otherwise. Right. And to a certain extent, it's, you know, given me a little bit of dreaming about seeing if I can find somebody to take over someday. Right. Yeah. Which is a touchy, which is a touchy thing because you don't want to build, you don't want to, um, to pigeonhole your kids into having their life be dominated by something. If that's not what they want it to be, that's right. That's one of, but you also have your hopes. Sure. So I think, and that's just a general parenting question. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, are you, do you have kids? Not yet. Okay. No. How do you think, it, how do you think it, kids could change standard age? Well, they could pack up some boxes for one. Um, they could stamp yeah. some banking the, voices. Yeah. The, the labor would be nice. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, that's funny. Do you collect anything else other than watches? Um, my son collects Legos. Cool. I am the financial backer of the Lego collection. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> <laughs> and so I would I would go so far as to say that I collect Legos because I've spent a lot of money on Legos in the last two years. What's been the most recent purchase? Um, of Lego. Well, I'm going to answer a different question, which is the which is the most watched tie-in question lego purchase because okay. it's funniest but then i'll okay. answer most recent most recent is moss Eisley space station so i got him the like the huge like three thousand piece moss Eisley space station um but uh he had we have the the bonsai tree the lego bonsai tree yeah two versions of it one version of it has the like the pink orchids and frogs and uh in the other version of it is more regular bonsai tree guess where that bonsai tree is right now i don't know yeah, behind your computer no it's, it's on a shelf in the grand seiko salon oh sick that's great <laughs> yeah that's it so was a great. it was a big hit at our grand seiko event we just had well you have that isn't that don't you have like a toy store like not far from you yeah that's the one yeah 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 right right yeah. They have those like really realistic looking stuffed animals. They look like very real dogs. realistic. Yes. Yeah. I told my wife, I was like, the only way we're getting a dog is if we get one of those stuffed animals and just have them in the corner by the front door. So you could like, every time you come home, it's like, he just greets you there. It'd be how, did, how did she take that? She was like, thought it was really weird. Uh, <laughs> and so who's, is she the one that's pulling for the real dog? No, not really. I mean, we kind of both want one, but we both don't want the responsibility. Yeah. You know, so we're like, if and when we have a kid is probably when we'll get a dog because it's all over, you know? Yeah, it's over. So yeah, enjoy uh, it while you can. Yeah. This, for, this dog kidless freedom. Right. <laughs> uh, what have you done recently for the first time? Oh, yeah. I know what I did recently. Um, I went lake. I went, I went 
lake fishing and on Tahoe and got up at five in the morning to watch the sunrise in Tahoe. Sick. Last week uh, with my brother and my wife and uh, a visiting uh, topper guest who was there for Geo, for the GS9 event we just had. Oh, amazing. We were out. We were out on the water at like five in the morning um, and trying to pull in some lake trout. What's the boat? What were you on? Like, um, just a standard six person canopied fishing boat. I can't tell you okay. the model. I okay. tell you the captain. He was great. His name right. was Daniel Salvador. Okay. Oh, so you rented a boat. Captain Salvador. Yeah. We, okay. Captain Salvador took care of getting us on the fish. Gotcha. Yeah. He had okay. all the equipment. We went in different parts of the lake where he thought would be good spots. And we pulled up, we pulled up some fish. Sorry, what were you fishing for? What kind of fish? Uh, lake trout. Lake trout. Interesting. That's apparently all that there really is in Tahoe. Oh, oh is that right? I know nothing about the, what's under the water in, in Lake Tahoe. Yeah, but I really That's wanted cool. to. I really wanted to be out on the lake and watch the sunrise. That was as valuable as the 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 little two pounders we caught. But it yeah. was it was fun. I thought that was incredible. Um. Guess what, what the lake you... record is for biggest fish caught? Of lake trout? 14 pounds. I'm not sure it was a lake a lake trout. Oh. Apparently somebody caught like a like a 30 plus pound fish out of Tahoe. And and Captain Salvador said that he himself had reeled in a 22 pound fish. Oh my gosh. So there's some beasts. Well, I know, I mean that that lake's gotta be really deep. But, yeah, uh, yeah, wow, thirty pound fish. Yeah, that's insane. It is a record. I have a photo here on my desk of when I was eleven years old on Lake Okeechobee in Florida, mm-hmm. and I caught an eleven pound five ounce largemouth bass. Oh, nice. Um, I was a very late bloomer as it is, so at eleven, I was probably the size of an eight year old. Uh-huh. And this fish almost pulled me off the boat. Like it was crazy. And um, so I can only imagine what a 30 pound fish trying to reel that in. I mean, you see the videos of like sailfish and marlin and all that stuff. But like, as far as a lake is concerned, not an ocean, like that's a different story. Yeah. That's nuts. What was your first car? My first car was a, a Mercure XR4TI. And how long did we have this car? I had it from 88 or 89 until 91. It had an unceremonious end. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> a Ford F-250. Oh, no. You were okay, though, obviously. Yeah, I was okay. That's the good. Ford F250 the was good too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> front. Oh Not my so god. Good. What's the daily driver now? What are you driving? Um, I drive the most common incognito car that you can drive in Berlin game, which is a Tesla. Oh god, yes. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And if you look for it in the parking lot, it's next to the other 16 Tesla wise. Is yours white or black? <laughs> How dare you? How can you make an assumption like that? It's white. Uh. <laughs> well, Rob, this has been a lot of fun, man. I really appreciate you taking the time. Like I said, um, I need to come up and come by and visit. Like I said, in the next couple of weeks, uh, would love to stop in. Yeah, that'd be um, great. And if, uh, is happy hour doable for you or no? You got to get home. We can have happy hour in the store. We'll we'll pour one out. We'll pour. Done. We'll sit you up at the bar, and we'll 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 pour you whatever you want. And we'll pour one out for what's the brand that's no more that you were saying? Sector. Sector. Too many yeah. limits. Too many limits. Rest in peace, Sector. <laughs> I don't do a lot of podcasts, but uh, yeah. I, I but what I heard about um about what your interview style would be like would be don't just don't it will go where it goes, and so I appreciated that. <laughs> Who told you that? I'm curious. I gotta know. Well, I'll, I'll tell you off the air. Oh, okay. Fair enough. That's cool. 
but um, I really, but I really liked it. So I haven't done a ton of podcasts, but I can tell you that none sounded like this. Well, speaking of podcasts, I totally forgot to ask you. You did. did what did you forget? Didn't you start a podcast recently? I sure did. Well, do you want to talk about it? I sure do. I co-host it with Zach Pena. And what's it about? It's called Burlingame and Park. Okay. Burlingame and Park is the intersection of Topper Jewelers. Mind-blowing. And uh, <laughs> we have six episodes we've done so far. Um, we did one with um, Jason Lim of Helios, who almost never does podcasts, talking mm-hmm. about our Helios limited edition. We just did one with Joe Kirk, the, the curator of... Uh, Grand Seiko. Um, we did one with VJ from Wind Up SF, where I saw you um, talking about the Kermit. Love VJ. We try to talk about. He's been a guest on on this pod. I saw. Yeah. So um, we try to talk. Just talk about episodes about stories or items that are interesting to, I think, the topper audience or just stories from topper that are interesting i think that's sort of what the, what the podcast is is mainly about sure but we're you know it's a it's a new discovery so we're all just sort of figuring it out i have a question for you if we're talking about podcasts so yeah what episode are you on right now um well zach pina actually is number 110 which releases next week okay um and then i've got you and gabe in the hopper so 112 okay so you'll be 111 i think okay so that's so funny that uh who uh that you did the the co-hosts of burlingame and park back to back so i guess my my biggest question for you that i bet your readers would find interesting was so you're now you're now over 100 episodes in um how has it changed from what you what you thought it would be when you started um i think i feel like it's far less about business than it is about people now i think when i launched it it was about the stories about entrepreneurship okay and it sort of became stories about entrepreneurs okay like their backgrounds, you know, what do you drive? Like, let's get to know you in a way that nobody else is going to get to know you because if you're on another podcast, they're going to ask you about the history of Topper and blah, blah, uh-huh. blah, which hopefully I did it in a different way, right? So yeah, like, sure. Um, that's kind of not only how it changed, but why it's changed. So some of it was very like, like cognizant and then others hasn't been. Um, but I would say that's the biggest change that I can speak to. I don't know. Maybe the listeners could tell you better than I can, honestly. Yeah. Cause I'm sort of along for the ride. I'm not, you know, outside the box I'm in it. And do you feel like, um, do you feel like it's caused the brand standard age to change at all? No, it won't. No, it hasn't caused the brand to change. I think if any learned, like, have you learned things from the podcast and the, in doing all of these podcasts that have maybe influenced your design? No, absolutely not. No, it hasn't affected design. It may be operationally, but not, not design. There's nothing creative that I've drawn from other people because I well, first of all, that's copycatting and I don't really want to do that. But like, um, but, but that's a, that's a really good question. But you the can have inspiration no. without copycatting. Sure. No, you can be inspired Right. But like, I don't think there's anything creatively borrowed from the podcast. I think it's been more of a mindset. I think it's been more of an operational sense, um, things of that nature, which has been helpful. Um, but no, yeah, yeah. Nothing, nothing too creative that I can think of. I think if anything I've talked about on the podcast before is like the things that people tell me I should design and I do never sell. <laughs> like that's it's just coincidental call it a coincidence or just a byproduct i'm not sure but um so i yeah. my plan for cat themed uh, automotive onesies i should probably not get into that in too much detail yeah we should probably uh put a button in that one all right sounds good 
Rob, I'll see you in a couple weeks, man. All right, take care. Thank you so much for taking the time. Of course. Okay, buddy. Thanks for having me. See you soon. Okay. Bye. This wraps up this episode of the Standard Age Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd love it if you'd share it with a friend or two. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show as it helps others discover these episodes. It absolutely helps far more than you realize. Shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care. Take care.